Hello everyone, you're listening to In the Weeds, an agriculture podcast hosted by Monica Jean and the Michigan Field Crops team. All right, welcome back again to In the Weeds. Monica Jean here, Field Crops Educator based in the Saginaw Bay region. And we have another good one with Dr. Kurt Stanky, but this time we're going to talk about soybeans. So if you're hearing this one and you're wondering what the heck I'm talking about, we got some other ones about corn and weed. You should check those out. Um, but I'm uh, back with Paul. Also, I have kept him around. Paul, would you uh, like to introduce yourself? Well, thank you, Monica. It's always Good to be on the team. Uh, <laughs> Paul Gross, uh, extension educator in Central Michigan and North. So uh, I'm glad to be here, be part of this conversation this morning. And Kurt, I guess, like, who are you? Look, why? <laughs> That's a great question, Monica. Who am I? Uh, thanks for having me here uh, today, Kurt Stanky, uh, soil and nutrient management specialist uh, here at Michigan State University. I know. Oh, I got a good one. So soybeans, they're a scavenger crop. I don't need to apply any fertilizer, right, Kurt? It will, they'll just do their thing? As with many things in life, that depends. You know, that's a right. question. That's, we say that kind of in jest. And, and, but boy, there's a lot of farmers, especially in light of the fertilizer prices and stuff. Now you look at some of the acreage projections for next year. Sounds like there's a lot of soybeans going in because- Ah, they're a scavenger crop. I'm gonna let it ride, right? <laughs> See what yeah, happens. I think I think you know when you start talking about what you should or should not apply to soybeans. Um, you know, one of the first things that's that's gonna come back is what's the uh, that uh, soil test showing, right? Um, and one of the things that we tend to maybe forget a little bit about with soybeans is potassium. You know, uh, you got to have those sufficient potassium levels uh, with soybeans. So, for example, you like look at uh, maybe a 60 bushel soybean crop that removes about 70 pounds of K2O. And you compare that to maybe a 200 bushel corn crop that only removes about 40 pounds of K2O. Um, so potassium is quite important with uh, soybean production um, and oftentimes uh, make it a little bit overlooked uh, with regards to to what you should or should not apply. You know, I've always joked over the years, you look at the three numbers on a fertilizer bag, that NPK value, and because K is third, it's probably the first nutrient that gets forgotten, right? And so I've always referred to potassium as the forgotten nutrient because everyone pays attention to the first two. Um, but with regards to soybean production, absolutely. Take a look at those soil test K levels. Um, that would be a great starting point when you look at uh, both commodity prices and fertilizer and fertilizer prices as to what you should or should not apply. You know, Kurt, that's interesting. You say the third nutrient, and, and I, and this is kind of a common as much as anything is. You know, we've a lot of farmers, especially a lot of these livestock uh, units, have a lot of manure. They put a lot of manure out in these fields, and they really think they meet a lot of the 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 P and K requirements. And I think that's the furthest from the truth. Uh, because of, you know, a lot of manure just doesn't have a lot of K in it. Yep. Um, but then, you know, obviously we have, have the uh, FOSS issue uh, to consider, consider there too. Um, but, but absolutely, I'm, I'm with you there. Um, you got to have 
uh, sufficient K levels for that soybean crop. And, and oftentimes we, we, I, I, you know, my opinion, it kind of gets lost in the mix a little bit, um, whether it's a distraction, whether it's, it's uh, too many other things going on. Um, pay attention to those soil test potassium levels now um, and let that guide your decision-making moving forward. And looking at where we're at, you know, in, in 2021, it's okay not to apply, right? You look at where fertilizer prices are at and where commodity prices are at. If you're sufficient with P and K, it is okay not to apply and to live off maybe that bank that you built up over, over the last several years. And maybe you consider application when things become a little bit more cost-effective. Um, that always seems to be an issue. Growers are afraid not to apply something, right? Um, and, you know, this gets into biomass responses versus grain yield responses. And yes, we can see a biomass response to some of these nutrients um, at uh, sufficient and above sufficient soil test levels, but many times it does not result in a grain yield response. And so again, knowing the difference between a biomass and a grain yield response and knowing those critical soil test values are two great starting points. Booker, one of the things that we haven't talked a lot about, and I think it's, a, it's another forgotten nutrient is lime, liming decisions. Uh, how, especially when this, in soybeans, because it's a legume, the nitrogen fixation, uh, where, where are we with pH, lime applications, and what decisions should farmers be making about that? pH is also a forgotten tool. Um, you know, with, with all the, the different soil tests out there, all the technology out there, you know, I've always joked over the years that uh, soil pH, that's one of those old person concepts that really doesn't apply to production agriculture in, in today's uh, modern era. And that couldn't be further from the truth. You know, I think one of the first fields I visited when I started at Michigan State uh, was a poor producing soybean field. Um, and it had a pH around, I think it was in the high fours. You know, it was like four, seven, something like that. And so even, even a ton of a lime application uh, early season on soybeans, those things greened up and, and, and grew like bonkers. Um, June and July. And so again, yes, pH is one of those things that, that tends to be a forgotten tool. Um, so start with a recent soil test and look at where that pH is at. Now, oftentimes uh, with regards to uh, pH specifically, you know, liming tends to become uh, profitable in a corn soybean rotation, typically when that pH gets down to about uh, five, six or so. Um, and the reason for that is a lot of our end fixing bacteria require a pH above that level. Um, and so when you see these poor producing beans, oftentimes they may, may not fix nitrogen at those, um, at a pH below that specific threshold. Uh, so again, take a look at that pH. Not only does it have an effect on, on those end fixing bacteria, but uh, it may also have an effect on other nutrient or other nutrients that may or may not be available as that pH ratchets up a little higher on that scale to those mid six range. What about that? And I'm kind of going down maybe a little rabbit hole here, but you know, we see a lot of the, uh, you know, there's some recommendations sometimes for putting on like the pellet lime and that type of stuff. Any comments or thoughts? You know, with, with liming oftentimes becomes, you know, pencil your price points, um, you know, Pelletized lime is something that gets brought up probably, you know, every five to seven years, maybe a little bit 
uh, more frequent than that. You know, it, it, it isn't really any better. It, it all depends at, at what price point um, you get that lime at, right? Um, so that will dictate uh, your overall profitability. Um, it doesn't tend to react any quicker, might be able to spread it a little better in some cases. But then again, that depends on your uh, particle size of your regular non-pelletized line. Um, so again, look at that line label, know how to interpret it, um, know how to calculate um, you know, the, the percentage of effective calcium carbonate. Um, you know, any of us in extension could probably help growers out with that if they're not familiar how to do that when looking at a lime label. Um, but again, liming is an important tool and especially where we're headed to uh, probably for the next growing season may, may pay better dividends than in some cases fertilizer application, but it all depends on what pH you're specifically at. So let, we haven't talked a, a lot about some of these, uh, the biological, some of those inferral pro, uh, products that are out there. Uh, does, do, will soybeans respond to those different than corn or uh, can you talk about those? And there's a lot of like a lot of them on the market now, it seems like that seems like that is the new frontier. Yep. Dozens. Right. I mean, and there's there's new ones out, uh, you know, as the weeks roll by, um, you know, where we've tended to see some of those biologicals work better is in what I call the shoulder pH zones, right? So typically if you're in that probably low to mid sixes up to about mid seven, we tended to have not seen responses in some of those areas. When you get outside that zone, either low pH or extremely high pH, sometimes in those are the scenarios where you might see a response uh, to a specific product like that. The problem we run into is that oftentimes you know, those specific organisms that might be in a specific product many times are already in the soil. Um, and so does application of that product then result in a benefit? What else is in the product? Is there a little bit of other nutrient in that product? You know, we've looked at products over the years uh, that might have, um, you know, that might, might be labeled the biological that when you get analyzed might be 15, 20% nitrogen, right? Um, and so that green up response might, might be nothing more than a little bit of an end response. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's something that has to be considered also. Um, definitely, I agree. There, there's lots of different options. I think there's probably a little bit of opportunity out there also. Um, but again, like, like you brought up, Paul, are we chasing the rabbit down the hole uh, with regards to looking at a specific organism being located in a specific environment at a specific point in time? The environment dictates a lot of who or who of who is or who is not there. Is it wet? Is it dry? Is it hot? Is it cold? Is it a hospitable environment for that uh, uh, organism to live? Um, is there food for that organism? Those are all factors that have to be considered also. Another thing I'd like you to talk about with soybeans is that soybean seems to be the crop where we get a lot of conversation about uh, foliar feeding. Uh, some of those you know, pre-flower, some of those things. Could you talk a little bit about some of those foliar fertilizer applications and soybeans? Definitely. You know, I think one thing we need to keep in mind is how much actual nutrient are we getting into the plant with a foliar feeding? So you start looking at either the quantity of N, P, or K 
um, that that soybean plant may take up. You know, it's probably a very minor amount that we are applying through that specific foliar feed. Now, all of this is going to depend on, on where those current soil test levels are. Um, is it an irrigated environment, non-irrigated environment? What's contained in that irrigation water? Those are all factors that play into the mix also. Um, the other thing we tend to, tend to forget is, you know, what is the growing environment at the time of foliar application? Um, you know, if we're in a, a dry, hot period, uh, uh, perhaps, you know, that, that foliar feed won't get into the plant as well um, as compared to maybe a little bit more moist, cooler period uh, where we might get a little greater foliar uptake. But the big thing is you got to look at the amount of nutrient that we're applying. In many cases with a pure foliar feed, it may not be sufficient to have an effect on that plant depending on how much nutrient that plant has access to in that specific soil system. All right. We are covering a lot. And I just want to remind everyone that um, although we were hitting on soybeans more with this one, we have recorded a wheat and corn one, and we touched on uh, some just good overall nutrient recommendations in those two. So just make sure you take a listen to them. Um, with that, Paul, do you have anything it's yeah, just one more thing for Kurt uh, is you see a lot of uh, uh, fields farmers, you know, in the soy in soybean systems. Is there kind of some common denominators uh, that from a fertility standpoint that these high yielding producers are all utilizing? Is there a and yeah, that's, I'm, that's I'm clear. Is a there, great, great question. You know, you know, some things I've noticed over the years is. What works well for one producer in a typical environment, then another producer wants to copy that, you know, in their environment in a completely different soil texture, different system, different rotation, et cetera. And it's not an apples to apples comparison really, right? Um, the other thing I've seen is what works well in an irrigated environment may not necessarily work well in a non-irrigated environment and the opposite also, what works in a non-irrigated may not have as great of an impact in an irrigated environment. Those are a couple of things to think about. Um, you know, it's it's one area that, that we've tended to focus on perhaps a little bit more uh, over the near term is probably starter fertilizer on, on soybeans. Um, there's not a lot of attention paid to that. Um, there's not a lot of research paid to that. And in some cases it's justified because you know, if I look at field crops in Michigan, soybeans in some cases are one of the more frustrating crops with regards to getting a nutrient response. Um, because if your, P, if your P levels are sufficient, your K levels are sufficient, it gets a little bit tougher to find that response. Sulfur has been hit and miss a little bit. One thing that we're focusing on, you'll see a little bit more information coming out here probably over the next year or two, um, is looking at starter fertilizer on soybean and what impacts that has on infixation. You know, when does infixation begin in soybean? I've talked about that a lot this summer. It's all over the board. Uh, so those are probably a couple things to think about. Um, I think there's an opportunity there early in the season, perhaps, uh, to maybe jumpstart that soybean plant a little bit and maybe reduce that lag phase of nutrient uptake early in the season to get a little more nutrients into the plant. But one thing we want to be sure of is whatever we're applying, make sure we're not just offsetting then and fixation capabilities in that soybean plant. Um, because from a profitability standpoint, that, that may not be the smartest decision. So those are probably a couple, couple key points uh, to consider with regards 
to overall soybean production and populations too. We've done a lot of work on looking at planting population and what impact that has on uh, fertilizer strategies. Haven't seen much of an interaction. Typically, a lot of our population, uh, optimal population work has come back probably, uh, you know, 94, 95,000 uh, plants to the acre, somewhere in there. But that's going to ebb and flow with the season, right? Um, so those would be uh, probably a couple of the points to consider moving forward. Great. And so what I heard again was do your soil test and your pH may be your, you know, the main thing you really need to pay attention to. So don't forget about lime. Yeah. All right. And we can end with, with my favorite Kurt quote is use profitability as a measure of success, not yield. Exactly. Bam. In a season when prices are high, let's do that. Soil test is probably worth its cost. So do that first. Yes, more so this year than probably in recent memory. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you again, Kurt and Paul, um, for getting on here. And uh, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you. This podcast has been brought to you by the MSU Extension Field Crops Team. For more podcasts or information, please visit us at canr.msu.edu backslash field underscore crops. Thanks for listening.